This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well and enjoying the summer. I hope you will find today's show interesting. It's certainly a departure from our usual shows. Today I will be talking with Evan Pritchard, author of the book Bird Medicine. We will be talking about the special connections Native American peoples have with birds and how each of us can develop a deeper relationship with the birds around us. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Evan Pritchard, a descendant of the Mi'kmaq peoples who has taught Native American studies at Vassar and Pace University and is the director of the Center for Algonquin Culture in New York State. Evan is the author of the book Bird Medicine, The Sacred Power of Bird Shamanism, which chronicles the deep mystical and spiritual relationship Native peoples have developed with birds over thousands of years. In his book, Evan discusses how birds have served as guardians, teachers, healers, peacemakers, and meteorologists. Evan, welcome to the show. Now, you've written this wonderful book called Bird Medicine, Could you tell our listeners what the book is about? Sure. Well, it all started with a uh, New Year's Eve phone call from a famous environmental lawyer wanted me to testify in a case on behalf of the Cheyenne Nation about the effects of cell towers and other things on birds. And uh, what he wanted was to establish that birds were sacred. So, you know, I called and met with various elders. And I asked this question, are birds sacred? And they all said yes. <laughs> and then the next question was, why are birds sacred? And each person said, well, I don't know that. That's above my head. But let me tell you a story. And so I collected many stories. I think I had 200 different sources for the book. And that's how the book started. And I had already had some background on this, obviously. That was that kind of surprising kind of middle of the night, like phone call, right, that started it all. And it all went very strong, a very strong flow of incidents and understandings from that. And then the birds really, in my life, started to really respond as well. And they could see that I had a little more understanding now, and they started to really communicate with me more like, I guess we won't waste time talking to him this time because he seems to be learning. So that's what happened. Wow. So could you explain to our listeners, what is bird medicine exactly? Bird medicine, the phrase has several meanings, really. But sometimes we say a certain person has the bird medicine and that it's a person who, this is usually in a native 
context in a like a tribe or nation indigenous people where they'll say somebody has the bird medicine means that they have the ability to communicate with birds in several ways and one is to understand nonverbal signs such as motions and whatnot and noises <laughs> that they make and also like with my aunt Helen she we always said she had the bird medicine uh, she could pretty much tell them what she wanted and they would do it. And I was always impressed with that, but I didn't understand it at all. And so we said we had, she had the bird medicine. One person thought that uh, it had to do with actual antibiotics for birds, like avian antibiotics. I said, no, that's not what I'm trying to learn about here. I'm going to learn about how birds communicate to humans. Actually, then you get into how they're communicating with each other as well. But mainly the book focuses on how Native Americans understand bird behavior in terms of spiritual messages, because generally uh, throughout the book you read stories that would lead you to the conclusion that, that birds are basically channeling, if you want to use the word channeling, or conveying messages from some non-visible realm. So I know that sounds a little out there, but, you know, there's so much circumstantial evidence it can only be explained by that kind of model of reality so i think the book has probably changed a lot of people's view of reality but in a sense you have to read the book to get the whole picture you know before the evidence fits together i find that fascinating could you talk about the origins of the relationship between birds and indigenous peoples well don't remember the exact reference but Birds are spiritual, and the different artwork shows that, I guess among the Cheyenne in particular, there's pictures of birds appearing and manifesting because of prayers of humans. And so believing that they're not necessarily just physical creatures, animals, if you want to call them, but are manifestations of spirit, which come from the pre-human times. You also talk about the birds of the four directions. Could you talk about the significance of that? The whole first part of the book is going through the four gatekeepers. And this is one of the first things, you know, after I got the mysterious phone call, and there was a gathering, a kind of a powwow and small one. And I ran into this fellow, people that I knew, and I've known him for years, but I never asked the right questions. There's always a very humble guy. So I said, people tell me you know about birds. So... You know, what about the uh, gatekeepers? And he knew all about it. He said that, you know, the eagle is the gatekeeper of the north, the hawk of the east, the crow is the gatekeeper of the south, and the owl of the west. And I had never heard that. But then I went on and I asked people all over the country, Native people, about the gatekeepers, and they all said exactly the same thing. And yet what's interesting is that I was felt very sure that that information had never been published. And so it's just interesting to see people all in total agreement about something that is not based on conventional science and has never been published that they all know as a fact or in their minds a fact. And so I structured the book on this with the four gatekeepers, you know, a whole section on eagles, a section on hawks, a section on crows, and then and owls, and they all have a different role. They're powerful birds. We call them strong birds. So that gives you an idea 
each of those chapters have stories about those birds and how they fulfill their roles. You mentioned this innate sensing or knowing. Do you think that's a form of ancestral memory? Yes, it's very ancient relationship. One thing I may have, you may be referring to is that it seems that birds and humans have evolved in a parallel way in through time, through the millennia, that they have what uh, scientists call a, a communication packet, like a whole set of gifts or tools internally that help them communicate on a very high level. And that's just from the scientific view of the bird calls themselves. And that we too, as a species, have this packet of communication tools or skills in our brains and in our tongues that is parallel and apparently evolves around the same time. So it seems that humans have looked to birds as role models. And as far as I can see, you know, for many, many thousands of years going back, well, here, you know, we have the ice age as this kind of marker in time, but now we know that there were humans all over the place on the Turtle Island or North America before that. But it seems that humans here have always looked to birds as role models from every kind of problem solving or behavior. And so that just suggests like a really profound, maybe even codependent relationship. What always amazes me is how hundreds or thousands of birds can fly in a flock so closely together without crashing into each other. Well, right. Some more than others. I think in an earlier book called No Work for Time, I talked about synchronicity and how when I went back to the Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq people, uh, who are my own cousins, then I noticed there was a lot of synchronicity because they are related for one reason, that they seem to move without verbal expression as a group. And I thought that was very curious. I read about that in the Word for Time. But of course, it fits in well with bird medicine. And one of the things is that crows have roosts. One of the things I noticed and was following already before I got involved in the book Bird Medicine, I noticed that these websites talking about crow roosts, and I had actually seen several. The crows roost in the thousands sometimes. And it said that our early ancestors learned how to gather and got the idea for having gatherings from crows because they really do have a tremendous tendency to gather. And, of course, they make a lot of noise. But then looking at it from an open-minded point of view and looking at all this data that so many people had compiled, by the way, it's online, but that the times were often at the old holidays, you know, the astronomical holidays that Native people used to follow, but also it seems like an enormous number, percentage of the places, places that I know to have been gathering spots for Native Americans many hundreds of years ago. And so that opens up, again, another another kind of mystical door between Natives and Crows. So the Natives will, you know, oral traditions say that, you know, these Crows are ancestors. That's one of the names. The, you know, Gahagut means old grandfather in Mi'kmaq. That's the Crow. And it also seems that they there may be something to this calling them ancestors because perhaps they are ancestors that are 
somehow coming back in the form of crows. And I know that, again, you know, I don't justify that scientifically except that these crows are gathering in the very same places and times as the native ancestors did. And that's kind of provable. (laughs) In your book, you mentioned a story about a nest full of baby birds and how they try to help each other. Could you talk about that? Well, like I say, uh, (laughs) that's kind of a tough question. I remember the story. I can't, I'm not sure I can tell it right now. But the thing about that story is that they all turned out to be different kinds of birds. So it wasn't to be taken literally that this bird was raising a large number, a variety of birds in the nest. And so it obviously had another message about humans from different places on earth and different colors all getting and you know, working together. That one I learned from a book rather than from an elder, but I know it's uh, it fits a pattern of the oral tradition that I recognize. Now, you have a section in the book called Messengers and Carriers of Spirit. I know before our interview, I was telling you about my cousin who saw a cardinal in a tree in her backyard, and she just knew it was her husband who had recently passed on. I mean, she just knew it. The knowing is really an important part of understanding because one of my early exposures to bird medicine was through my mother, who didn't talk about this a whole lot, but when her mother died, she went to the burial and she saw a wren sitting on her mother's tombstone and she knew that was her mother and nothing could shake her from that conviction but it wasn't necessarily the kind of thing she always talked about, but it was very important to her. And so that was maybe the first very dramatic incident that I knew of. I can't remember how old it was. I think I was at least 18, but I never forgot that. And, you know, I didn't feel like I had that gift, but of course it grows on you. (laughs) It comes, you know, and it's a lot of the stories have to do with that knowing that uh, somebody has taken that form somehow from the world of the dead and has visited you. And one of the most dramatic stories is, again, my great aunt Helen, who had the bird medicine gift, and that she had a, a white owl that lived between her and her neighbor, and her neighbor was blind, and they could both hear the owl. And, um, and then the blind woman moved f- uh, four miles away, maybe five miles away, to the beach to you know help run a beach in. And then, to make a long story short, one day the white owl showed up at the second-story window of this blind woman's house and started banging on the window. Now, it turns out I was at that woman's house, and she showed me the window, and I stood there looking out this window, and I was imagining this large white owl banging on the window pane. So I was becoming a part of it. But anyway, she knew that that was a sign that Aunt Helen had passed away. It was the same owl, for one thing. She felt it was the same owl. Even though her eyesight was poor, she looked right up against, you know, her face up against the inside of the window, and the owl was beating on the outside, and she knew that Helen had died, and her husband came by and said, what's all the fuss? She said, Aunt Helen's passed away. He said, well, how do you know? Well, the bird told me. He said, wait for the phone call. And then the phone rang, and there was news that she had passed away. And so there are many stories like that in the book. And, of course, Aunt Helen is often in the middle of it all, right, because 
she taught me, but I didn't understand. You know, when I was younger, I started studying with her in the, you know, native ways, probably 13 or 14, and I didn't understand things like this. But my sister was more quick on the, that intuition part. But Aunt Helen had a great deal of knowledge about birds. And she actually, when she was, I guess, in her in 20s, in the 1920s, she would teach leaders of other tribes who felt they realized they had some, some of the knowledge had been missing, and she would teach them. So she had a great knowledge of birds. But also she could work with them like that and apparently somehow communicated to the blind woman that she had passed away. And owls are often the, the, you know, the birds that choose to do that. The important thing about the book is that each species has a separate role. And if you don't understand what the role of each species is, it's very hard to understand their message. Cause it's just like, you know, just too vague but when you know that it helps a lot like if it's an owl sending a message then uh, it probably has more to do with somebody in the spirit world or somebody passing on you know that is a spirit you know spiritual teaching is that there is a spirit world there's much more and in fact it all kind of becomes one you know the spirit world is really great spirit itself and great spirit is more like a cosmic field, like a quantum field of light. And it's in everything, uh, the highest to the lowest. And we say, you know, Great Spirit, you are in every rock and leaf. So that's the highest and the lowest. And part of it is that when we pass away from the physical world, we go on, continue in, in that other world. And it connects everything together. So we're actually already surrounded by that. And so a person who's passed away is, in a sense, in the next room from us. And we just have to really turn our minds around <laughs> to grasp that. And the birds seem to be able to communicate messages, once you understand their nonverbal language, from the ancestors or for somebody who has just passed, and possibly even people who are living who are very strong in the spiritual connections. Now, can you tell us the story of the club-footed messenger? Yes, sure. That's a happened in Poughkeepsie, told to me by people involved. But there was a man who was the he was he had a club foot, so he couldn't move around. And he was part of a bird society, you know, bird lovers club. And he had a I think a pigeon, right? And then he had to let it go because he couldn't take care of it. But then his brother was in the same town. And when he looked out the back, this pigeon was, a very large pigeon was standing in his backyard. And the pigeon told him in this telepathic way that we're talking about, he was very certain that the pigeon said, you know, your brother has just died. And uh, he thought, well, that's, <laughs> hmm, should I trust a pigeon? And then the pigeon lifted his, I think, his left leg, and his left leg had a clubbed foot, just like the brother who had a clubbed left foot. And then that pretty much convinced him that it was a true message. And so he, you know, tried to look into this and found that, in fact, his brother had just died. So that's sometimes, and, you know, it's hard to explain some of this, but 
would say it's like uh, there's a lot to it and often unusual and sometimes very specific. Now, you had a story about a hummingbird, too. Apparently, a hummingbird is a protector of those who served in the military. Yes. And it, you know, uh, first time I heard that, I said, oh, well, okay. You know, why would that be? Well, my asking why doesn't really mean much, but I since then ran into lots of stories. When I hear people tell me that, you know, something strange happened with a hummingbird at the time, and then they'll say, well, it was the time of someone's passing. I say, was that person in the military? And they often say yes. I always, almost always say yes. And I'm saying, my understanding, it doesn't really, you know, isn't a prerequisite. So, you know, a hummingbird is known to be very fierce defenders of their uh, offspring. And so a bear can be defeated by a hummingbird because they'll go after his eyes and blind him. And the bears don't like that. So the bear will run away from a hummingbird. So that shows you how fierce they are as warriors. Well, they're also hummingbirds. They're also good negotiators because they can back up. They can go, you know, higher or lower. They can back up. So it's kind of a good, how you say, a mascot. (laughs) I don't want to use that word. But they're uh, helpers for people who negotiate either in business or in peacemaking because they're rainbow birds. So they're associated with creativity, but they're also associated with freedom is that hummingbirds really don't like to be caged in any way. And they'll really fight being caged or if they're trapped in a room. Now there's a story that, you know, a woman was, uh, you know, in a house and the hummingbird came in and trying to get out and was really hurting itself trying to get out. And, then there was this a nuthatch on the other side of the window, on the outside, and the nuthatch got the attention of the hummingbird and managed to get eye contact and was able to calm the hummingbird down and somehow communicated to the hummingbird where the door was because the woman had opened the door somewhere in the house, but the hummingbird didn't see it. And somehow this nuthatch was able to do almost like, I guess, like little bumblebees do. They show, you know, motion through their body dances. So I guess the hum, the nuthatch did a body dance and told the hummingbird where the door was, and the door the hummingbird flew out. And I imagine the two of them, you know, met up somewhere out there and <laughs> went off together. I don't know. But there's a lot we don't understand about the capabilities of birds. You talk in the book about trying to help with the formation of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Could you tell us about the bird that said 60-60-60? Yes. Yeah, I love that story. I've been wanting to bring that story back. But Joseph Campbell had died, and I was spending time with his widow, Jean Erdman. And I was talking to her on the phone in the kitchen. And, I and you know, this deadline was coming up where if you want to be a founding member, people who were involved, and they could donate money, but they didn't say how much money. And I know, you know, George Lucas, the filmmaker, had donated a million or two dollars. And I felt like, well, what, you know, I had no idea what to donate. I had $60 in my pocket, you know. So I asked her, I said, I'm really worried about this. I don't want to be disrespectful, but so uh I didn't tell her about the $60. But 
she said, what would your ancestors have done in this situation? I said, well, they would go to a tree and they'd put tobacco at the base of the tree and they'd pray for guidance and then a sign of some kind would be given and they would know what to do. She says, well, that's what you should do then. Do as your ancestors would do. I said, I'll get right back to you. So I hung up the phone. I walked right outside and I had tobacco and this is all happening within seconds, right? I walked down the stairs, stand at the foot of this tree and the tree has branches right at eye level. And this blue jay came up and looked me in the eye and he said, 60. And I was taken aback. I said, excuse me, did you say 60? Because it sounded like almost like a human voice, but it was a jay's voice. 60, you know, really quick, like 60. And I said, are you saying I should donate $60 to the Joseph Campbell Foundation? And the blue jay said, 60. And he nodded like, Yes, stupid, you idiot. And then it flew away. <laughs> so of course, the, the most beautiful part was running in and, you know, to the kitchen, picking up the phone and calling Jean, who was still, you know, standing near the phone. I got, I told this story and she said, Oh, Joe, he always called him Joe. Said, Joe loves stories like that. You know, he believed in the bird. He, he would love to hear that story. And in fact, I'm sure he's standing right there. That was, One of the greatest pleasures was being able to tell her that story because, you know, she was the one that encouraged me to, Mm -hmm. you know, go into this kind of anthropology where I'm writing about my own people from the more of an insider's view. And she said, Joseph Campbell really was very interested in the Mi'kmaq people or Mi'kmaqs and that didn't feel that there was enough out there. So she encouraged me to write about them. So I owed her that. Now, that's incredible. So could you talk about Sitting Bull and his love of birds? Yeah, there's some detail in the book, but basically Sitting Bull was pretty amazing. He had a vision of a thunderbird, and that more or less made him a Heioki, and so he became part of Heioki society. But part of that has to do with contrariness, but also being able to communicate with birds. And he had a tremendous interest and knowledge of birds, including songbirds. And also, he wrote songs, and I think the whole connection with birds may have helped encourage his songwriting. And it's said that he had written, say, 200 songs or maybe more, but about 100 of them are still sung today. But, of course, they're in Lakota and sung by Lakota drum groups or whatnot or as drum songs. I don't really know. I don't remember all those songs, but I've... I think I've heard one or two or seen the words to them, but they're very interesting and mystical. So he had a lot of beliefs, the same kind of beliefs in general about the bird medicine he shared and spoke about. So that's what I remember. But it's very impressive that, you know, he was such a great songwriter that people still sing his songs. But also he had a lot of mystical experiences And there's a book called The Lance and the Shield by a man named Utney. Not to plug another man's book, but that's the best book I know that goes deeply into Sitting Bull's thoughts. And I will share with you one personal connection. I'll just say this without mentioning the person's name just because, you know, for his own privacy. But there's a certain flute maker that I've been friends with for maybe 20 years. And years ago, another friend for my birthday, commissioned him to make me a flute, a cedar flute. 
and he made it basically in front of me as I as I watched. And then a few years later, I started experimenting and trying to make bird calls on this flute. And I found, to my amazement, not only could I make almost any bird call on this flute and, you know, involving different fingerings and overblowing, but that it was in the key that the birds sing it. What are the odds? They're astronomical that just by accident, flute not only makes bird calls, which is amazing, but in the same key. So I told the flute maker he had never known that, but it turns out, he says, I just made it the way my father taught me and exactly the way he said. And he did it exactly the way his father taught him. And he did it exactly the way his father taught him. And that's just following exactly how they said to do it. And it stretched back to Sitting Bull, who was the, I guess you say, the, the grandfather of that line of individuals. So his great-great-great-great-grandfather apparently was Sitting Bull, and apparently he was able to make a flute that made bird calls in the key. And so I, I figured out how to do all these bird calls. And then I thought, well, the problem is I don't know what I'm saying. Like, what am I saying to these birds? I'm probably saying, I love you, marry me, or something, you know, in whatever. It's likely, right? So um, I'm care- careful about where I play these bird songs. But isn't that amazing? And it probably does come from Sitting Bull because he had a amazing spiritual connection to birds that went very deep. Do you have a final story to help us wrap things up? So someone commented to me at the very last moment where I had actually done editing on the book to get it ready for publication. And I thought, well, you know, so glad that it's finished and I can relax because, you know, it's a lot of pressure. And um, then somebody says, well, what about non-natives? Do they have any birds? Do they communicate with birds? And how does that work? And I thought, well, I need people to tell me stories. I need birds to tell me stories. It was outside at an outdoor table in the backyard under a tree, and I was writing and editing. And lo and behold, a meadowlark lands right above my head. And that is just so unusual in, you know, the Hudson Valley anyway. And started singing away and singing away very floridly and on and on without repeats. And I was trying to think about, this is obviously some kind of answer. And my father had just passed away. And I I kept thinking, this is my father's spirit channeling through this bird. So, like, why? And so I started to think a long time about it and realized that my father, who was mainly Welsh on that side of the family, is Welsh, and that he always talked about the lark ascending, which was an old Welsh song that goes back to, you know, the last free kings of of Wales. So I know he loved the lark, and he always, when the radio would start playing The Lark Ascending by Rayfon Williams, he would stop all conversation. No one could speak. He loved that song so much. And so the lark was really understood by Owen Glendower and all these great mystical leaders. You know, they could communicate with them and learn messages from the larks. It was a symbol of freedom for whales, too. And so I felt like, okay, here's the last piece of the puzzle, is that, you know, I'm sure all kinds of people around the world can communicate with birds, but the Welsh certainly communicated with the lark. And here my father, who had just passed, was coming to me in the form of the lark and singing 
very floridly and at length, saying, don't forget about the Welsh. It was not just Native Americans, but it's really at the center of our spiritual traditions of the Native Americans that I know. It's like this bird communication is absolutely essential because this is one of the main ways we get messages from the spirit world other than directly through our dreams. The birds are like angels and that they're, uh, you know, they have a purpose and they have messages for us. And so if there's a way to get into that, one should. And in the book, I offer the key, which is understanding each species and what its role is spiritually. I do have one story. This is my first experience, I think, with bird medicine is that when I was like 14, I would walk along this, you know, old orchard beach, which is where my mother used to walk along when she was a child or 14. And there was a certain spot that I always felt a special power there, like a power spot right at the edge of the water. And one time I walked to that spot and then a seagull came and flew over my head and dropped a big fish at my feet. So I picked up the fish and I thought, well, I'm not hungry. Thank you. And then I decided the fish was alive and I decided to throw it back in the ocean and let it go. But I always wondered what the significance was, significance of that spot and the fish and the seagull. And it haunted me for years. Then I would ask my, my aunt, not Aunt Helen, but my mother's sister, like, what do you think that is? And she's like, oh, I don't know. But then as I was writing the book, and this is obviously 40 or 50 years later. So I went back to the same aunt and I said, well, I'm trying to collect bird stories. And I, you know, white people have significant, you know, connections with birds. And I said, you know, I had this thing once with a seagull dropping a fish at my feet and told her where it was. She said, well, you know, I have to tell you something I meant to tell you 50 years ago is that your grandfather, whom you never knew, was a Micmac grandfather I had, would go to that very spot every morning and he would put tobacco down at the edge of the water and pray for you children and pray that you'd be safe. Just as the the sunrise, the light of, we'll say the red light of the sun would be forming kind of a road across the waves and touching the edge of the beach at that spot. He'd put the tobacco and say a prayer for you. And she would say, well, I don't know, but it sounds to me like he was somehow in that seagull or communicating with that seagull to offer you that fish, which is, uh, you know, has many layers of symbolism for life, you know, how to live your life. And so uh, now you know that the seagull was part of this, somehow came out of your grandfather's spiritual ceremonies in that very spot because she knew the spot and that you know she described it to me she said that's the spot that's where he would do his ceremonies so it took 40 some years to unravel a single bird sign but that's how it sometimes works sometimes it takes years to find the clues to understanding what these bird messages are especially from someone who had passed away amazing I'd like to thank Evan Pritchard for joining us today. You can find his book, Bird Medicine, by going to his website at algonquinculture.org or by going to amazon.com. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. 
Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.